It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to episode 75 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are glad, as always, that you have joined us. If you go to your local Christian bookstore, it is unlikely you will find a copy of Thomas Jefferson's The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, an edited version of the four Gospels, often referred to as the Jefferson Bible. This is probably the case because if one defines a Christian in relation to the church's historic creeds, Thomas Jefferson does not fit the bill. He did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He did not believe Jesus was God. He rejected a belief in the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. But he did love the Bible. He just didn't think it was the inspired word of God. For Jefferson, The Bible was useful for moral improvement. Jesus was a great moral teacher, someone that needed to be followed and his words obeyed. But it should ultimately be read like any other great book. He told his nephew Peter Carr to read the Bible with a critical eye, as you would read Livy or Tacitus. When Carr began to study the Old Testament story in which Joshua asked God to command the sun to stand still so he could finish his battle with the Amorites, that's a story recorded in the book of Joshua, chapter 10, his uncle Thomas informed him to read the passage in the way that any good astronomer would read it. Such a biblical story needed to be examined rationally in accordance with what Thomas called the law of probabilities. Jefferson was even harsher on the New Testament book of Revelation. He described the fantastic stories in this book as, quote, the ravings of a maniac, no more worthy nor capable of explanation than the incoherences of our own nightly dreams, unquote. He concluded that, quote, there is no coherence enough in them to countenance any suite of rational ideas, unquote. But it was the Gospels, the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, that drew Jefferson's attention more than any other books in the Bible. He had little respect, however, for the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He accused them of offering only fragments of Jesus' moral precepts. The Gospel authors Jefferson believed had disfigured Jesus' true teachings with what he called the mysticisms of a Grecian sophist. And Jefferson did not stop there. He went on to say that among the sayings and discourses imputed to Jesus by his biographers, I find many passages of fine imagination, correct morality, and of the most lovely benevolence, and others again of so much ignorance, so much absurdity, so much untruth, charlatanism, and imposture 
as to pronounce it impossible that such contradiction should have proceeded from the same being. I separate, therefore, the gold from the dross, restore to him the former, and leave the latter to the stupidity of some and the roguery of others of the disciples. Of this band of dupes and impostors, Paul was the great Corypheus and the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. Jefferson believed the four traditional gospels and the other biblical books that explain the meaning of the gospels, again, namely the Pauline epistles, were corrupted by the author's inclusion of irrational stories, such as Jesus performing miracles, Jesus rising from the dead, and Jesus redeeming the sins of the world. Jefferson set out to correct this problem devoting much of his intellectual energy to creating versions of the gospel that did not obscure what he believed to be the true message of Jesus of Nazareth. The result of his labors was the so-called Jefferson Bible. And in today's episode, we are going to talk with one of the foremost authorities on that Bible, Smithsonian Institute curator and American historian and author Peter Manso. He is the author of a brand new book titled The Jefferson Bible, A Biography. Peter will be with us momentarily, but first we need to take care of some business. As you may know, the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Ralph Stone, David Plummer, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Bob Beatty, Justin Stoller, Ron Schooler, Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, and Mike Holwick. We are a listener-supported podcast, and we keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, and by the way, that includes either here at the podcast or at the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. Or even better, go directly to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thewayofimprovement. And of course, the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. And we also are on Facebook. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet, and please consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or your favorite podcatcher. We are indeed on most of them. Peter Manso is the Lilly Endowment Curator of American Religious History at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History. He is the author of eight books, including the memoir Vows, the novel Songs for the Butcher's Daughter, the travelogue Rag and Bone, the retelling of America's diverse spiritual formation, One Nation Under Gods, a founding editor of KillingTheBuddha.com, great religious website, by the way, and co-author with Jeff Charlotte of Killing the Buddha, A Heretic's Bible. 
He received his doctorate in religion from Georgetown University, lives with his family in Annapolis, Maryland. Today's interview is based on his most recent book, The Jefferson Bible, A Biography, published in 2020 with Princeton University Press. Our guest today is Peter Manso. He is the author of a brand new book published by Princeton University Press in 2020 titled The Jefferson Bible, A Biography. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, John. It's great to be here. Now, you have an interesting job, and I'm a little bit envious of your job. You work at the National Museum of American History, but you also are the curator of American religious history. Before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about, you know, what that job consists of. And really, I think you kind of came to the Jefferson Bible right through an exhibit first. Is that correct? Exactly right. Sure. I I joined the Smithsonian in 2016 uh, when I became the National Museum of American History's first curator of American religious history. And it would seem unusual that there had never been a curator at the American History Museum focused on religion, but some of that has to do with the way in which uh, the museum has evolved through the years. So the American History Museum, as, as one of the 19 museums of the Smithsonian, was started in the 1960s originally as a history of the uh, a museum of the history of science and technology in America, kind of a, a Cold War move to assert our the primacy of our technological history. And it wasn't until maybe the 1980s that the museum emerged as a broader cultural history museum. And even then, as a federal institution, was somewhat reluctant to really present religion or to engage with religion in an ongoing and deep way in its exhibits and its research. So only in the past decade or so has the museum embraced this idea that you can't tell American history without engaging with religion. And because of the way the museum works, you are really unable to have a sustained engagement with any subject area in American history without having a curator focused on it. So they were able to work with the Lilly Endowment in 2015 and 16 to endow this position as the curator of American religious history. And I'm fortunate that I was able to have that position at that time. And I should say that I'm not the only curator across the Smithsonian that focuses on religion at the new Museum of the History of African American History and Culture. Uh, they also have the curators of religion. So across, oh, wow. yeah, across the Smithsonian, there is this new engagement with religion. But though it's a new engagement, it's also, or I should say it's a renewed engagement because early on in the history of the institution, there was a deep engagement with religion. When the Smithsonian was only the U.S. National Museum, so throughout the second half of the 19th century, it did have curators devoted to collecting and displaying religious objects. They had a division of religion at the U.S. National Museum. And the man who ran that beginning in the late 19th century and through the early years of the 20th century was a fellow named Cyrus Adler. And interestingly, he is the one who is credited with rediscovering the Jefferson Bible and making it known to the public. We actually, maybe like 20 or 30 episodes ago, talked to Amanda Moniz, I hope I'm pronouncing her last name right, uh, the philanthropy curator. We had her on the program. Is she still there? She is. She is. So refresh our memories here, my audience's memories. You know, what, what is the day-to-day experience like for a Smithsonian curator? You know, obviously most people know, well, he, he makes exhibits, right? You know, and you're a prolific author, too. So there's obviously time to do that, too. Tell us a little bit about how you balance your work life as a Smithsonian curator. 
Well, many uh, curators these days are academics. So yeah. they come from the world of doctoral studies in the humanities, as I did. I have a doctorate in religion from Georgetown. But rather than teaching through the classroom, we teach through exhibits. So that is the way we engage with the public through the use of material culture to tell stories within our subject area. And just like in the classroom, it has its real strengths and it has its limitations. So within an exhibit, you can have really wonderful objects and still you will be limited to 50 or 70 words to describe the significance of this object to American history. Right. <laughs> so I often say that it's plenty of space to get things wrong, <laughs> but, <laughs> but not a lot of space to, to really dig in and, and tell the, the nuanced stories of the place of these objects in American history. So fortunately, we are able also to pursue the work of research and writing and publishing that scholars in the academy are able to do. So I try to divide my time between planning and staging exhibits on the museum floor and also doing the more involved work of writing books and publishing them as often as I can to engage with a different audience who isn't walking through the museum and also may have more time to spend learning about the subject. As you, as you mentioned, I did come to the Jeff Bible through an exhibit. My first exhibit at the museum was staged from 2017 to 18, which was on religion in early America, where we were able to present the Jefferson Bible in its context within a array of 50 other objects relating to American religious history from the 1630s to the 1830s. So that's how I came to have this interest in telling the story of the object itself. Yeah, you're 50 to 70 words. You know, I'm always trying to explain to my students, I sign them a four-page paper and they want to write eight pages. I'm like, no, that doesn't make you any smarter, right? You need to tell the story in a certain number of words. That's actually more challenging than just telling me everything you know. You know? So some of them want to study public histories. If you're listening, students, this is a good kind of defense here of the short essay. <laughs> yes, yes. When I, in the past, I have taught writing myself and I've always told my students that constraints can be your friend. And so right. the constraints of an exhibit label, for example, can really make you focus on what is important about this object. And if someone is just walking through a gallery, what do they need to know if they pause for 10 seconds to look at it? <laughs> so yeah. it's, and these are important questions to ask because it really forces you to contend with what is important, what makes this relevant for understanding American history. Right, right. So let's talk about the Jefferson Bible itself. I love this phrase. I think it's in your introduction. You say, the Jefferson Bible is, quote, less a book than a remix, unquote. Tell us what you mean by that. And maybe just give us a general kind of introduction, you know, the kind of elevator pitch, right? You're telling somebody, hey, I wrote a book about the Jefferson Bible. And they say, well, what's that? What is this thing? Sure. The Jefferson Bible is the popular name for an edited volume of scripture compiled by Thomas Jefferson while he was in retirement at Monticello. Our best guess is that he did this in 1820, or he completed the task in 1820. So we're currently in the 200th anniversary year of the Jefferson Bible. This book that I've written about it, the Jefferson Bible Biography, is part of a series from Princeton University Press called The Lives of Great Religious Books. So the first question I had to ask myself was, is it a great religious book? And the answer was yes and no, uh, because it's not a book in the sense of a work conveying the words of a particular author. Jefferson did not write any of the words in this book that we call the Jefferson Bible. Uh, what it is, in fact, is a scrapbook or a collage of about a thousand gospel verses, which Jefferson physically cut out of a number of copies of the New Testament uh, in several languages, in English, French, Greek, and Latin. 
all of these verses were chosen by Jefferson because they adhered to his vision of what was truly important about the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and that vision was specifically about crafting a, a version of Jesus in keeping with the ideals of the Enlightenment, one whose actions were supportable by evidence and observation. So in other words, no miracles, uh, nothing supernatural in the Jefferson Bible. I call this book a remix rather than a book in the conventional sense, because Jefferson used the text to convey a meaning that was outside of the purpose for which it was intended. Every verse he chose was part of a miraculous story, and that didn't matter to him at all. What he wanted was to create a non-miraculous result. Now, I think I wrote about this in my book on Christian America, and I think it was actually the historian Edwin Gaustad, who I think you mentioned a couple of times. He wrote a great biography, a little dated now, but a good biography, a religious biography of Jefferson. I think it was Gaustad who said that Jefferson cut these sort of supernatural parts of the gospel out, you know, not necessarily because he was, you know, trying to undermine Christianity, although maybe there was a little bit of that involved too. But he used this, I think, if I'm correct, Gaussad may have even used the word devotional, like a kind of devotional daily reading and kind of morality, right? Because he had, he greatly admired the teachings of Jesus, you know, the kind of moral teachings of Jesus. Is that fair? Do you think that's an accurate portrayal? Rather than looking at Jefferson, like a lot of the evangelicals look at him, he messed with God's word. Jefferson saw it as a more of a positive thing, right? Because he wanted to be a better person. Is that fair? Oh, I, th I think it is fair. Jefferson was creating a text, which he called, I think I forgot to mention, he called the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Right. And he was creating this text for his own personal use. He didn't tell anyone he was doing it, uh, other than a few friends that he mentioned uh, the project to in, in correspondence, but he didn't make it widely known. He didn't want it to be widely known because it was exactly that. It was for his use. But at the same time, when he read the Gospels, he believed that he was seeing not only the words and actions of Jesus, but also layers upon layers of interpretation, exaggeration, and outright falsehoods that had been applied to the words and actions of Jesus. So what he wanted to do was strip away all those things that he felt were, were later additions to the text uh, that were put there because of the, the biases and the needs of the generations following wanted to learn about Jesus. And he wanted to get back to what he thought was the core Christian experience. And he thought that he could do this literally with a penknife, cutting things away. Yeah. I opened the book using this extended metaphor of an archaeological dig, that he is stripping away the layers that have gathered over something in order to get down to the basics of what was really there underneath it all. So his, I mean, this begins, this kind of stripping of the layers, right? The first layer is... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And then on to Paul and so forth, right? Yeah, and he believes, so when we, when we talk about the Jefferson Bible, Jefferson's starting point is the Gospels. It's not, in yeah. fact, the New Testament. So immediately he is done with Paul. He has no interest in Paul. <laughs> he is interested because he sees it as a later interpretation, not as the story itself. So he starts with the Gospels, and, and that's where he begins cutting. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot of our listeners, they've come to this podcast through some of my own work about the religious beliefs of the founders. I think for their sake, this is a good question they probably have on their mind. Was Thomas Jefferson a Christian? 
Well, there's no doubt that he considered himself one. Yeah. Baptized into the Anglican Church, educated by Anglican clergy. Gausted has that the great phrase of the Anglican milieu, Anglo- yeah. Anglican environment that yeah. Jefferson was raised in. He's never saw himself in any way removed from that throughout his life. His beliefs certainly became expanded. He began to doubt certain tenets of the Church of England and he made this known in his in his notebooks and in the type of reading he was pursuing. But that didn't change how he saw himself. He didn't change that he, yeah. that he was a church vestryman, that he continued to contribute to various Christian causes. That was just all a matter of the culture in which he was raised. Throughout his life, he would say, in fact, that he, he was a real Christian, by which he meant that he was a disciple of the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. So he, at a certain point, decided that he was not a disciple of Jesus himself, because he felt that the teachings were the point. And it's interesting because when he said that he was a, quote, real Christian, you find in that not only an affirmation of his own identity, but a real, a cut against those who he didn't think were real Christians who were calling themselves such. (laughs) Um, So that's one of these things that doesn't change, that claiming uh, faith identity for yourself is often cutting against those who are claiming something similar, uh, but who you don't see eye to eye with. Yeah, you're right. Some things never do change. That's so interesting. I think it was Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onef. I, I got into a little, well, it was actually Annette. I got into a kind of the Jefferson scholar. She was actually on episode two or three in this podcast. You know, there was this Twitter blow up, I think it was a year or so ago, where, you know, historically, right, if you're looking at Jefferson historically, right, he always saw himself as a Christian. But if, if you look at his belief system and you match it up against kind of, you know, Orthodox Christianity in a theological sense, right, it's hard to say he upheld those historic Christian creeds, right? Is that fair? It is. And I think that um, because I come to this not as a Jefferson specialist or an early America specialist, but rather as someone who's interested in American religion very, very broadly, I don't have a problem with him saying one thing and acting and probably believing another way, uh, because these questions of religious identity are very complicated. They're complicated now and they're complicated then. And beliefs often cut across what our expectations of particular denominations might be. Uh, But that doesn't change the fact that Jefferson saw himself as an Anglican. The fact that he doubted the Trinity doesn't instantly mean that he should not be called an Anglican. (laughs) It leaves historians quite a lot to unpack and quite a lot of room for interpretation. So it's only natural that there would be disagreement. Yeah. In my chapter on Jefferson in my book, I got in a little, I got a lot of pushback from the, some pushback from the kind of Christian right when I titled the chapter on Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, follower of Jesus. And, and that did not go over well with some, uh, you know, some people who, you know, wanted to define him as a follower of Jesus in perhaps a different way. But uh, I think that echoes some of the things you're saying about his deep interest in the moral teachings of Jesus. So there were two, and I don't know what the right language is right here, but I've heard other people argue there were two Jefferson Bibles, and in some ways there were kind of two projects, right, that he was working on, that they were closely linked. Can you sort this all out for us? You know, were there two of these Bibles? What was the relationship between them if there were? Because again, a lot of the, you know, I was telling you before we started, the work on that is really unclear, but you, you were very clear on it. So what is the relationship between these two projects? Yeah. So... The work that we refer to as the Jefferson Bible, and that title of the Jefferson Bible has only ever been retrospectively applied, and it's only ever been applied to one text, and that is the text that we're talking about, the 1820 edition that Jefferson called the Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. 
But that is the fruition of a very long-term project that Jefferson was thinking about actively trying to persuade others to pursue and eventually decided to tackle himself. So beginning while he was in the White House after 1800, he was actively thinking about uh, the benefits of doing this work of paring down the Gospels to something essential. While he was in the White House, he actually began doing this, and he created a book at that time that was called The Philosophy of Jesus. It was a similar type of cut-and-paste approach to Scripture, um, only in English at that point. Uh, This book that he created, finished in 1804, has been lost to history. So we don't have a physical copy of that, but we do have a list of the texts that he used to create his philosophy of Jesus. So it is possible to recreate what he intended to make at that time. So that, uh, as far as people who say there are two Jefferson Bibles out in the world, that is Jefferson Bible number one. So you talk about this in the book a little bit, but if that is lost to history, right, you often hear, especially people sort of on the Christian right, talking about this reference to Jefferson writing that for the work of Indian missionaries, missionaries to the Indians. Where does that phrase come from? Did he write this in one of his letters to someone else? I can't remember off the top of my head. What is your take on that, that he wrote this to be a work among the Indian missionaries? Jefferson did not help us in terms of reaching clarity on this because he actually used that. He used that phrase for use among the Indians. I'm sorry, I don't recall the exact language right now. Is something along the lines for use among the Indians, unembarrassed by knowledge of the Savior, or some, or something yeah. along those lines. Something, but there is that phrase of being unembarrassed by knowledge. Where is that phrase? That is on an extant title page that exists. Okay. So this is what has led many people to say that Thomas Jefferson condensed the Gospels simply for the use among Native Americans, for evangelization among Native Americans. That is where that that claim comes from. And if you read Jefferson's subtitle, if you take it at face value, that's what it seems like what it is. But the scholarship surrounding that phrase suggests that he was using this as a slightly disguised barb against his his Federalist opponents, who he also thought were unembarrassed by knowledge. He, he was making a joke, is what the argument is. Some people are persuaded that by that, others are not. There's no real way of knowing because nowhere does he say in his correspondence, I am making this joke at the expense of my political opponents. But right. that is the read on that text because it was never used in that way. Uh, he never mentions that that's why he was doing it. Right. Uh, so it is, it, it's a curiosity that he used that phrase Um, associated with this book, The Philosophy of Jesus. By the time he returns to this project, when he's in retirement at Monticello, he decides that he wants to expand upon the philosophy of Jesus by adding three languages to the text. So adding to the English text, French, Greek, and Latin, creating a parallel narrative of the life of Jesus and the teachings, which is an expansion of the project of the philosophy of Jesus. And that is what yields the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, which becomes known as the Jefferson Bible. Right. And that is not published until the late 19th century, right? Yeah, it's not published, in fact, until the early years of the 20th century. Okay, 1904, was that right? Or? That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's covered in the beginning of its rediscoveries in the 1880s, uh, when yeah. this fellow who I mentioned, Cyrus Adler, discovers several mutilated copies of the New Testament in a private library in Baltimore. And he's able to track down through the Jefferson family 
the work itself, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, which had become a, a family keepsake. He was able at that point to purchase it for the Smithsonian, for the U.S. National Museum, uh, and displayed it for the first time in an exhibit in Georgia in 1895, and later put it on display in Washington. Right, right. So give us just a couple of examples, Peter, of you know the cuts that Jefferson makes. Like what stays in, really what gets cut out, right? If you were to do some kind of uh, teaching assignment, right, where you had the New Testament and then the Jefferson Bible, what would students notice? Well, to begin with, Jefferson cuts away those parts of the life of Jesus that most people would first associate with the life of Jesus, his virgin birth and his resurrection from the dead. So Jefferson has no use for any of the information the Gospels provide uh, about the coming of Jesus. He's not interested in an annunciation from an angel to Mary. He's not interested in resurrection from the dead later on. Uh, and so he wants to start with really just mundane details. So the Jefferson Bible opens with the part stating that there has been announced that a census will be taken for a tax. And it ends with the body being laid in the tomb. So the Jefferson Bible, you might say, starts with taxes and ends with death. <laughs> but what's really interesting to me, uh, reading the text of the Jefferson Bible, and this is something that I find surprising that not a lot of people have noticed, it's that throughout Jefferson's project often seems on the verge of defeating itself uh, because he wants to present a character who is compelling, which is to say Jesus, as a character who is compelling in his time, who is compelling enough to gather followers around him. Uh, and yet he does not want that character to do the things that the people of his time would have found the most compelling, which is performing miracles, healing the sick. And so you often have these moments in the text of the Jefferson Bible where Jesus seems to be on the verge of doing something miraculous he seems to be on the verge of offering healing to someone in need. He talks as if he is able to do this, and this is included in Jefferson's text. But then in the end, he does nothing. <laughs> and it's, it's really remarkable. It's, it's like a punchline. It's like a joke with, a, with all set up and no punchline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, it's, it's a funny thing that he does that, and he was not able, and by this I mean Jefferson, Jefferson was not able to see how he might be undermining the very project that he was set out to do. If he's trying to present Jesus as this compelling moral teacher, removed from, the, from yeah. the miraculous nature of the ministry as the Gospels present it, he's telling half the story. And it's hard to believe that the Jesus he presents would have had the successful career that he wants to portray. That is so interesting. Is there anyone, Peter, with the New Testament, right? You, you have like, hundreds of commentaries written verse by verse for every little exegetical point, right? For every book of the Bible. Do you know, has anyone gone through the Jefferson Bible and done this kind of work that you're talking about, like written a commentary on it, raising some of these questions or pointing out exactly what was removed and what wasn't? I don't think anyone has. There's a really excellent um, Princeton University Press edition of the, the writings of Jefferson in which his two efforts of Bible uh, yeah. editing, Gospels editing, are included, in, including a, um, a reproduction or a, a recreation of the philosophy of Jesus and the text of the, uh, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. That probably comes as close. Really, 
it has the text of the Jefferson Bible itself has not received that kind of scrutiny. Yeah. Because I think, and this is a point I make in the book, it is a book far more often talked about than read. Right. People like to use it as a symbol for Jefferson the man of, of something that um, of, of his audacity. They like to point to it. They like to talk about it, but people don't really read it other than they're yeah. wading into it. I could imagine that some people will have an objection to that and say, oh, I, I certainly have read it. But when you do sit down and read it, um, you discover that there's a lot of redundancy. He repeats himself quite a lot. And again, this was something that he was doing, Jefferson was doing for his own use. So any of these problems of what we might note in it, <laughs> If they didn't bother Jefferson, it didn't really matter. It was just for him to read at night um, and to think about Jesus, and as you said, in a devotional way. Yeah. So it's um, it it doesn't really hold up under that type of scrutiny, and that in itself is very interesting. Yeah. Our time is slipping away here, so I want to jump ahead here, Peter, to talk about the maybe more modern day, like post-World War II, say, kind of reception of the Jefferson Bible. And I think your case, I think a lot of the major contributions of this short book that you wrote is kind of getting out there the way in which Jefferson Bible has been, you know, appropriated or used by both religious liberals and religious conservatives. So let's talk about both of those sides. Um, let's talk about the 1960s a little bit, um, Unitarians and their relationship to the Jefferson Bible. Sure. Uh, so beginning in the 1960s, there's this effort by Unitarian ministers to claim the Jefferson Bible as a, as a Unitarian text. And they come to this honestly because the project for Jefferson grows out of his friendship with uh, Joseph Priestley, a Unitarian scientist and minister who leaves England for reasons of um, religious persecution, uh, settles in Pennsylvania, and strikes up a friendship with Jefferson. Uh, he and Jefferson, through correspondence and, and meetings, uh, talk about their shared desire to compare Jesus to the great moral teachers of the world, particularly Socrates. So Jefferson hopes to persuade Priestley to undertake this project of paring the Bible down to simply the moral teachings of Jesus for the purpose of, of performing that type of comparison. Priestley never follows through on Jefferson's request that he do precisely what Jefferson wanted. So Jefferson was forced to do this himself. So uh, Unitarian ministers begin pointing this out in the 1960s and claim the text as their own, uh, including through publication with the Beacon Press, which is historically associated with the Unitarian Universal Universalist movement. So it is this effort to show the Jefferson Bible as a uniquely American and uniquely Unitarian approach to Christian scripture. Do you know if Unitarians ever used it? like as part of services, as part of liturgies, or as part of Sunday morning services? I don't know. Uh, it would not surprise me, of course, because again, it, it is simply the text of, of the New Testament, of the right. gospel. So it would fit in seamlessly. Yeah, yeah. Now, this, the conservative sort of co-optation of the Jefferson Bible is you know, it's relatively recent. And, you know, some of our listeners will be familiar with David Barton and his attempt at trying to create a Christian nationalist view of history. But tell us a little bit about the whole Jefferson lies uh, controversy, David Barton, and the way kind of the Christian right, especially through Barton, has thought about the Jefferson Bible. 
Yeah. Uh, so David Barton's uh, now fairly notorious book, The Jefferson Lies, uh, which was recalled by its Christian publisher for a number of, of errors throughout, uh, is structured around a number of statements that he considered to be lies that are told about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, one of them being that he fathered children with Sally Hemings. And another one, interestingly, that he wrote a new Bible is the way in which that Barton frames this lie told about J Jefferson. Right. Framing it in that way, framing it in such a way that it, the lie is that Jefferson wrote his own Bible, it, it's easy to debunk that lie or to, to call it a lie because Jefferson didn't do that. He didn't claim to do that. No one claims that Jefferson did that. And so in order to make this claim and to do this work of reclaiming Jefferson as a figure of Christian nationalism, he has to, Barton has to say that people are saying about the Jefferson Bible things that aren't actually said. And so this uh, argument that there are in fact two Jefferson Bibles, I first heard in, um, in the Jefferson lies. Yeah. And, and again, it's not the case. Uh, the Jefferson Bible as used, as that term is used, has referred only to this book, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. He seems to be wanting to, um, to muddy the waters a little bit, to talk about these two books that one could call the Jefferson Bible, to say that one of them was used for proselytization of Native Americans. It, it's a bit of misdirection when you want to talk about what Jefferson actually did uh, with this book that is popularly known as the Jefferson Bible. And it's all done as an effort to claim Jefferson as this figure of Christian nationalism. Though he, he himself called him, he considered himself a Christian, no one would really say otherwise. He still is a thorn in the side of this Christian nationalist movement, this idea of wanting the founding fathers to be Christians in precisely the way that some Christians today see themselves. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson would probably not uh, be chosen for the elder board or something of his local evangelical church. Uh, you know, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this was the high mountain that Barton needed to cross, right? If you can get Jefferson on your side, you could perhaps make a stronger argument, but it largely failed. And even, even Thomas Nelson, the Christian publisher who published it, uh, realized it was not a very good book, to be honest. I'll, I'll say that so you don't have to, Peter. <laughs> We are talking today with Peter Manso. He is the author of The Jefferson Bible, a biography just out with Princeton University Press. Peter, this has been a really informative conversation. I hope it's been an informative conversation for our listeners as well. Thanks for taking some time to talk to us today. It's a real pleasure, John. Thank you. you enjoyed that great interview with Peter Manso. He's such a prolific author. He has an array of interests. Uh, go to his site, petermanso.com. See all of his various works. I read some of those in the biography, but he writes, he writes novels. He writes, you know, books about contemporary religion, historical books. This Jefferson Bible book is, I told him before we went on the interview, I told him that this is going to be a standard reference for me from now on. Remember, this is a book actually on the history of the book, which is, you know, Princeton has this series. Um, I've only read one other book in the series, and that was George Marsden's biography, if you will, of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. This series from Princeton also has, quote unquote, biographies of Calvin's Institutes, uh, Augustine's Confessions, the book of Genesis, 
And again, Mere Christianity, Book of Common Prayer, the Book of Mormon, again, by leading scholars in the field. Letters and Papers from Prison by Bonhoeffer, edited by, by Martin Marty. They're sort of small, short little introductions. Again, I hope you enjoyed this. You know, for those of you who are teachers out there, you know, try this uh, exercise in class. You know, give a couple verses or passage from the New Testament or the Gospels and then put it alongside Jefferson. It's a great little exercise to get your students to see what Jefferson left in, what he left out. And it's a great way to teach, you know, not only about Thomas Jefferson, but about the Enlightenment and the relationship between religion and the Enlightenment. So again, thanks to Peter Mansell for taking some time to talk to us. If you get a chance, get over to the Smithsonian and see some of his work over there, the Museum of of American History, National Museum of American History. So again, thanks for listening today. And until next time, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast was recorded to you via Zoom. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Peter Manso. Our studio producer is Casey Lehman, and your host, as always, is John Thea. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.